I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. Thanks for coming out. I see a lot of people from Norman Alliance, a lot of friends of Norman Alliance, a lot of friends of Hope and Passion Ministries, so we're glad to have you here. There were even some people that showed up when I came to speak at their church, and I hit cars in their parking lot, and they still came. I was invited to a tea not too long ago, and the keynote speaker just, you know, I do everything not half-hearted, you know what I mean? I do everything just, I remember there was people from Hope and Passion and people from uh, the church that we were at standing on the porch there, and I said it was raining, and I said, don't worry about it, I'll be nice, I'll go get the car for everybody. So I leave the porch and I go out into the lot, and here I am, you know, I had just spoken, the keynote speaker for the event. Turn on my ignition, car's in reverse, and I don't put on the accelerator half-hearted. Put that accelerator on, I must have been this car, this far from the car behind me. I hit that car so hard. They say that the car behind me rocked back and forth five times. So here's me. What was my reaction? I started laughing hysterically. And I looked over, and there are the rest of the Hope and Passion Ministry people standing on the porch with the one representative of the church who happens to be here this evening. God bless her. And everybody's on the porch, and I'm laughing in the car, and they're all standing there going, I can't believe she just hit that car. (laughs) You're really gracious to still come, Claudia. Thank you very much. Um, About a month ago, I had a little encounter with a skunk in my yard. And it wasn't a close encounter, so don't worry about that. But it was an encounter. My husband was out of town, and my parents told me that there had been some sightings of a rabid skunk in our neighborhood. So sure enough, I wake up one morning, and there's a skunk roaming around my backyard. A bedraggled, sad-looking skunk out in broad daylight, which they shouldn't be. And he kept taking little naps in various places in my yard. Places where I would go and watch the birds and sit out. But no, I was hiding in my house. I was afraid. The skunk just kept roaming to different areas, taking a nap. I'd think, oh, he's gone. I'd check. There he was again, just roaming around, napping. So finally, I called the local police. I said, I need help. There's a rabid skunk in my yard. I can't go out and watch my birds. This is terrible. Now, before I go any further with the story, how many of you have ever seen a black and white Adidas sandal? Anybody ever seen them? Okay, Adidas, their symbol is like a black and white stripe, okay? And there's, I have a pair of Adidas sandals. They're much like these sandals, only black and white stripe, and the sandal is black. Okay, so back up to tell you that because I don't have a picture of this sandal anymore, which I actually took a picture of at the time of the event. But I broke my cell phone, had to get a new one. That's a whole other story. So anyway, which if you like devotions, I did write a devotion about a cell phone I dropped in the toilet once. Believe it or not, there's a God connection to that. But I, dig- but I digress. So anyway, this skunk is roaming around my yard. I call the local police. About two or three hours later, the skunk is gone. But I see the police car across the street. And not too long after that, I hear a gunshot in the neighborhood. And I realize the skunk is dead. Yes, the local police came with the rifle, and they shot the skunk, and he was dead. Very nice, isn't it? So the next morning, I got up, and and I had been obsessed about that skunk. Everywhere I went in my yard, I'm like, is the skunk there? Is he dragging his butt along, and am I going to run into him? You know what I mean? So I've been very paranoid about him the whole day before. Get up the next morning, go to do my morning devotions out on my little swing in my backyard, kick off my sandals, and start to read my Bible. So I'm sitting there reading my Bible on my swing, 
And my eyes go up over the Bible. I get distracted for some reason. And what do I see out of the corner of my eye? But the black and white Adidas sandal. I jumped. I went, ah! I screamed. And I looked down. And I was like, wait a second. It's just an Adidas sandal. The skunk is dead. Remember, Shelly, the skunk is dead. Now, I share that to make a point. The skunk is dead. And by that I mean Satan has been defeated. But there are many situations in life that startle us and cause us for just a minute to think, do we really have the victory? Amen? How many of you are honest enough to to say, I've been there? Things come along in life and they blindside you and you think to yourself, wow, wait a second. But 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ defeated Satan on the cross. And Colossians 2.15 tells us that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, having triumphed over them on the cross. Amen? And I really, really have been in a lot of prayer about this message tonight. And I really want you to put on your thinking caps to ask the Lord to cleanse your heart, to settle in and to think with me for just a while about this subject that I'm about to bring up because I believe that there are people in the church of Jesus Christ who are just a little unsettled, a little jittery because your faith has been passed on to you through your family, through your church, and possibly you sit and ask yourself the question, is Jesus really the victor over death? Is Jesus really the victor over disease? Is Jesus really the victor over mental illness? Is Jesus really the victor over the problems in life that we face? And I'm here to tell you, the skunk is dead. And our Christian faith is not based on feelings. It is based on fact. Amen? Now, the title of this message tonight is a little different, a little different, you know, type of sermon than you may be used to. And I know Bria was looking at my notes ahead of time, and she said, this is a little uh, text enriched, isn't it? There's a lot of text in this. And I said, listen, any of you, please know this. You can get on my website, hopeandpassion.org, and you can contact us, and we can get you the PowerPoint slides. Don't get bogged down in all that, but I do want you to think tonight. This is a, a different kind of sermon in the sense that a little bit of it is apologetic in nature. Christian apologetics means defending your Christianity from a reasonable perspective. Now, I've spent a lot of time with our youth group teaching them reasons to believe in the Bible. Because too many of our kids go away to college and someone asks them, why do you believe in the Bible? And they say, well, I just do. My parents did. My church does. How many of you know that won't stand up? You've got to own your faith for yourself. There's a reason to believe in the Bible. And there is a reason to stake your life on Jesus Christ. And tonight, I want to share one of the reasons. You may think, Shelley, that's 2,000 years ago. That's far removed from my life. No, it isn't. The first century martyrs, what happened to them has everything to do with your life as you're sitting in the pew right now. One reason to stake your life on Jesus Christ is the first century martyrs. And I want everybody who leaves this place tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit to be fully empowered to know you have victory in Jesus Christ. There is nothing but hope ahead for you. Amen? Now, let me explain what I mean about uh, this is a good reason to stake your life on Jesus. The first century martyrs. I said this morning when I gave the announcement at our church, 
If I, Shelley Prindle, were to be martyred for my faith tomorrow afternoon, if somebody would kill me for my faith in Jesus Christ tomorrow afternoon, that would be a great testimony to my belief in Jesus Christ. Amen? It would lend evidence to the fact that Shelley Prindle really did believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, and she's staking her life on him, right? But it would not necessarily lend evidence to the fact that Jesus really did die and rise again, just to my belief in his death and resurrection. Now, I make my point by sharing this. Do you remember when the, the men who committed suicide by flying into the Twin Towers, do you remember them? They were martyred. They died for their faith. Their dying for their faith did not prove that Islam is true. Can I get an amen? It only proved that those men really believed in Islam. Are you with me? And so it becomes a whole different ballgame and a whole different story to talk about martyrs of the first century. Because unlike Shelley Prindle, who has been handed my faith down through the centuries from other people and other sources, Peter and Paul and James and Matthew and Bartholomew and all of the people who walked and talked with Jesus, they were eyewitnesses to the facts. They saw him. They talked with him. They hugged him. They watched him go to the cross. They watched him be nailed there. They stood with him. They looked at his hands and his side. They looked him in the eyes. They, they no doubt touched his body. And they wanted to make sure, is this the same Jesus that died? Did he really defeat death? And i got to tell you that before James was beheaded for the sake of Jesus, don't you imagine that while that sword was up in the air glistening in the sun and they had his head on the chopping block, and Herod Agrippa said one last time to James, do you still want to die for your belief in this man, Jesus Christ? If James had any doubt, he would have said, now wait a second, let me think this through one more time. Is this, did I really see the risen Christ? Is he the same one that died for me? And if there were any doubt, he wouldn't have been beheaded. He would have said, hold on, I'm not quite sure. But the fact that James gave his life as an eyewitness to Jesus Christ lends evidence not just to his faith, but evidence to the fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you with me in that? This is a very important thing for us to study. And what I want to do with you tonight to make it personal, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into different situations in your life, the Lord led me to study one particular martyr, the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred for his faith. Now, the first martyr that we read about in the book of Acts is who? Stephen. He was the first martyr, but the first apostle, the first of the twelve, uh, one of the closest friends of Jesus to die for his faith is James the apostle. Now, not the James who wrote the book of James. That is James, the brother of Jesus, who came to know the Lord later and was a leader of the church at Jerusalem. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about James, the inner circle friend of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. This is the James we're speaking of. And I want the Holy Spirit to allow us, we're going to explore some key experiences that he had with Jesus. 
I want to talk to you about some of the things that he learned about the Lord that would have made him say, chop my head off and take my very life. I believe I get life back through Jesus Christ. Amen? And there are people in this room tonight, you may not be facing death imminently, but some of us do. We struggle with fears about illness and death. But you may be facing any number of situations. It is never the end with Jesus Christ. Amen? It is never the end. So I'd like you to bow your heads and pray with me before we start. Lord, I praise you for this time together. I thank you for every person you brought here. You know that I have sought you, Lord, and I've asked you to bring every soul that you wanted to be in the sanctuary tonight. This is a different kind of message, Lord, but it's one that we need. It's time that the church of Jesus Christ be serious about our thinking, about understanding that the Christian faith is based on fact. And so, Lord, I ask in the name of Jesus that you solidify faith tonight, that for those who are feeling overcome, for those who are feeling hopeless, for those who need to be convicted to give everything to Jesus, they're just holding back because they they don't quite have all their faith in you where it should be, and therefore their lives are not given wholly to you. We pray in Jesus' name that you'd work in us tonight. Father, speak to us by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit. And I thank you in his name. Amen. Amen. The scripture that we're going to open up with is a scripture found in the book of Acts. And I'm going to project it up here in the PowerPoint. You can open your Bibles too. Because how many of you know I like to hear the sound of pages turning? Thank you very much. Yes. The older the Bible, the thinner the paper, the better. It makes more of that turning noise. Come on. Acts chapter. There we go. That's good. Okay. Acts chapter 12. The year is about 43 A.D., about 10 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead. It's only 10 years later. And I want to say this. This is an historical account. How many of you realize that the thing that makes Christianity different than any other religion is this? Our deity stepped out of heavenly glory And we are the only religion that teaches that our deity, not a prophet of his, not an emanation of him, but our actual God, we teach, stepped out of his heavenly glory and entered the time-space continuum in which we live. He invaded the universe. Now, because he invaded the universe 2,000 years ago, that puts Christianity out there to be proven Because we're saying you can investigate our God. He put on flesh and walked this earth 2,000 years ago. We have reason to truly believe that this is not just a fairy tale. This isn't just a pipe dream. Check it out for yourself. It's rooted in history. Amen? So in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, verse 2, in my opinion, is one of the most sad and yet the most wonderful verses in all of the Bible. In all of the Bible. Now look at what it says here. About that time, Herod the king, now this is Herod Agrippa I, grandson of Herod the Great, who had all the boys in Bethlehem murdered to try to kill Jesus. This is his grandson. The year is 43 AD. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
Now, first of all, what the church means here is it wasn't like, you know, Christian and Missionary Alliance or Assemblies of God or the United Methodist. You know what I'm talking about? What was the church ten years after Jesus ascended to heaven? It was nothing more than, but everything, but nothing more than people who believed in Jesus Christ. And so about that time, an actual historical figure, the Roman uh, leader, Herod Agrippa I, started to lay violent hands on the church of Jesus Christ. And now one of the saddest and most glorious verses in the Bible. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Period. That's That's it. That's all you ever hear about James. It's done. Isn't that something? James was one of Jesus' closest friends. And here in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, we find that he was beheaded, was killed with the sword, and that's the end. We don't hear of him ever again. Amazing. What a statement. I read that scripture. This is what prompted this message. I read that scripture one day in my backyard, and my mind couldn't waver from it. I thought, James. See, when I read the Bible, I go back and I realize this really happened. I thought to myself, James, you walked with Jesus. He took you to all the special places that he went. He let you in on all his greatest secrets. And then one day, ten years after he left the earth, your head was on a chopping block. And you were killed for his sake. What a testimony. Amen? It's a very sad verse, but a very glorious verse, because I am convinced that believers down through the centuries, not just in the first century A.D., but up until the year 2012 in which we now stand, I believe that people around the world have read that scripture and put their life on Jesus Christ based on the testimony of James and other martyrs who have died. Amen? Praise God for men like this. And we're going to investigate his life and see what an effect His life actually has on us today. He was killed with the sword for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think for a minute. I want you to go back to that scene, however it would have happened, and imagine the executioner standing there with sword up and raised, James laying with his head on the block, the order having been given. And James refuses to recant his belief in Jesus Christ. And he waits the final seconds for the knife to come down and sever his head from his body. I'm going to tell you what. If an eyewitness of Jesus Christ could have that much hope in Jesus to suffer that, I can hope in Jesus for anything. And death is not the end. Amen? So who is this man, James, that would allow himself to be in this position, that would die for his faith in Jesus? What did he experience? And what should we take from his life and from what he endured? Well, first of all, I want to make sure that everybody in the room, because, you know, I'm not stupid enough to think that there may not be some skeptics in the room. We've read a scripture from the Bible But there are outside historical sources other than the Bible that testify to the martyrdom of the early church. Do you realize that? Remember when I first started teaching our youth group, the outside references to Jesus other than in the Bible, they were amazed and they were so happy to hear it. Yes, 
The historian Josephus in the first century who wrote the Antiquities, here is something that he said about the other James, James the brother of Jesus. This is not in the Bible. This is a historical account of Josephus. He said, Festus was now dead and Albinus was but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So there's outside historical reference. It's not just the Bible that tells us that people died for belief in Jesus Christ. Amen? Non-Christian historians, secular sources, like that of Tacitus, the Roman historian of the first century. He wrote a lot about Nero. How many of you have ever heard of Nero before? How many of you know Nero was not a fictional figure? He was a real and terrible monster. He was an actual human being, and Tacitus writes about him. Nero had Peter and Paul martyred in the late 60s. Nero is believed to have burned the city of Rome in A.D. 64 and used Christians as the scapegoat for the burning in order to persecute them. And this is what the Roman historian Tacitus, well-respected historian, not a Christian historian, this is what he writes. He said, But neither human help nor imperial munificence nor all the modes of placating heaven could stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order of Nero. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd called, what? Christians. He's not necessarily saying they're Christians, but he's testifying to the truth of what happened. First then, the confessed members arrested next on their disclosures vast numbers were convicted not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race and derision accompanied their end they were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs or they were fastened on crosses and when daylight failed were burned to serve as lamps by night nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exposition in his circus and look at the last few lines You got the impression that they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. Another outside historical reference to the fact that people who were called Christians were persecuted and killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? People in the first century who could have checked out for themselves, is this thing about Christ real? Wouldn't that be neat if we had lived back in that day and we could go talk to Jesus and we could have seen him before and after and been fully convinced? That's what they were. And that's why their faith means so much to us. So this man, James, having been one of the people that was killed under these horrible regimes, what was his life like? How did he know Jesus? Well, first of all, we know that he was called. Called to be a fisher of men. I'm not going to turn to this scripture yet because we're going to do another account of it. But in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, the first four disciples are called. We have um, Peter and Andrew and James and John. Now, James and John were brothers. All four were fishermen. James and John were the sons of Zebedee, successful fishing business there. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus called them, they left their business, they left their family, they left everything, and they followed Christ. Amen? 
And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. Now here's how this message has most impacted me. James was called to be a fisher of men, and I know that he has impacted my life because since studying this, I have become ashamed of myself in what little I'm willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God to bring people in. Amen? He gave his neck. He gave his life, and we give so very little. He was so convinced that all of life is wrapped up in Jesus Christ that he said, take my life. All I want is more people to come into the kingdom. And if they come because of my suffering for him, then let them come. I want people to come into the kingdom of God. Amen. And I am praying tonight that you too will be convicted, that you will think really in reality, in history, and understand that these are actual human beings, just like you and I, who said, I believe in this so much, I'm willing to give everything that people might be brought into the kingdom. And he truly became a fisher of men. James realized that Jesus enters our very world to show us who he is. Now, this is intimately beautiful, so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. This is a parallel account of the fall of the calling of the first disciples. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now, before we read it, before you go there, let me just say something. Whatever it is that you have to deal with every day, Jesus wants to deal with it with you. Amen? I remember many, many years ago, I've been an insulin-dependent diabetic for about 30 years now, a type 1 diabetic, got it when I was 13 years old. And I remember about 15 or 20 years ago, I was doing a blood test. And I've, I've tried to calculate once how many blood tests I've done in my life. About 10 to 12 a day times 365 days times 30 years. Yeah, there's a lot of holes in these fingers. But I remember once I was doing one, I was at a friend's house, and I started to cry. And I said, God, how can I do this forever? I just, I can't take every minute of every day doing these blood tests, deciding what's going to happen to my body, worrying about it, thinking about it, calculating. I just broke down and I started to cry. And I will never forget that moment and have never had to have that moment since when God, came, if he, came, he like entered into the room and the Holy Spirit said to me, Shelley, every time you pull out a blood test strip from that little bottle, I'm right there with you. So I don't know what you're dealing with right now. I don't know what you've been going through. I don't know what you are going through. But whatever the stuff of life is that you're suffering, Jesus is right there with you. He gets down and dirty in the stuff you have to deal with. And this is a scripture to prove that to you. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was uh, standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and that's the Sea of Galilee, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. So first of all, this is Jesus Christ. He sees these fishermen. He says, hey, basically, can I borrow one of your boats? Can you put it out in the lake just a little bit so that I can be out here in the lake and see everybody and I can teach them? And so he did. Verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing, exclamation point. Now, 
These guys are just being introduced to Jesus, and Jesus has been teaching. And the Bible says Jesus taught as one who had authority and not a regular teacher. Amen? So Peter's ears are probably perking up, and he's thinking, who is this guy? I mean, he seems like he's not just a regular human being. He's teaching us with authority. But on the other hand, I've been a fisherman my whole life. I'm part of a fishing business. I'm a big brawny guy and I know what I'm doing. And who is this guy sitting in the boat coming to tell me to put my net out? We worked all night to try to get fish. We know what we're doing. We know every trick that there is in the book to try to get fish. You're telling me to let my net down, okay? But there was something that Jesus said that got Peter's attention because here's what Peter said. He said, but at your word, I'll go ahead and let down the net. Now listen, whatever it is you're going through tonight, you may be like Peter and say, Jesus, do you really get it? Do you really understand? Don't you know I've tried everything? You with me? Jesus wants you to look at him and say, but because you've said to, I will obey you and I will wait for your promise. Amen? And when they had done this, They enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were, what's it say? James. And John, the sons of Zebedee. James was here at this moment. Now, catch this with me. They first meet Jesus, and this awesome teacher is willing to get into their fishing boat. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just imagining the fishing boat in the first century without all the stuff we have today. That boat was probably full of fish slime, right? Don't they skin fish and do whatever they do to fish after they catch them and all that dead fish stuff everywhere? Okay, so Jesus comes and he says, I'll teach in your boat. I'll get in the stinky, slimy fish boat. And I'll direct you as to how to put your net out. And when your boat gets filled up almost to sinking with these flip-flopping, smelly fish everywhere, I'll be right there with you. Amen? If you have to deal in fish, Jesus says, then what am I going to do? I'm going to deal in fish. Shelly, if you've got to deal in blood tests, I'm going to deal in blood tests. If you've got to deal with a situation at your place of employment, then Jesus says, I'm going to deal with your situation of employment. If you have to deal with a recent death or you've been bereaved or you're facing some kind of thing that's looming in the future, God says, then I'm going to be right there with you. Amen? So James realized early on that this Jesus is about real stuff. He's willing to get his hands dirty. He's willing to sit in my fishing boat with me. Amen? Now, I am dumb enough to believe... That James, when his head was on the chopping block, now, I get a little bit graphic. I know at the women's retreat a couple years ago, I said something that Karen still to this day says I shouldn't have said. Had to do with vomiting, yeah, yeah, but I, I won't say it, yeah, I know. And, and st- but, but they asked me back the second year, so okay. So I'm just thinking like, I'm just imagining that Herod's chopping block, however they did that with their guillotine, with the sword, you know, when they killed these men. I'm just imagining that they didn't like Clorox it after every time. You know, I'm just thinking that, like, seriously, this was a nasty scene. And they take Herod to the, they take uh, James to the chopping block, and I'm sure that the blood of previous martyrs was spilling there, and it was a terrible thing to look at. And this man had to lay his neck down. And I bet he thought, Jesus dealt in fish with me. 
he gets in the stink with me, he'll be here on the chopping block. Amen? That's a beautiful, beautiful thing to remember. So that's the first encounter I want to share with you that I believe James had in his mind. He realized that Jesus enters our very world to show us who he is. I believe that James recognized that Jesus is in charge of all reality. Amen. All reality. We sang songs about that tonight. That picture on your left, the great photographer Shelley Prindle took that at the Pittsburgh Zoo and Aquarium. I was in the shark tunnel. Like, I could live in the shark tunnel. I love sharks. Legos and sharks. But anyway, that's a bull shark from the Pittsburgh Zoo picture that I took. And on the right, that's microscopic plankton. All right? All these live under the sea. You've got the clownfish, the bull sharks, all these little creatures under the sea. Psalm 104, beginning at verse 24. One of my, what am I going to say? One of my favorite passages in the Bible. I only have a few. This is one of them. Okay? Here's what the Bible says. <clears throat> How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan which you formed to frolic there. All of these creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Are you with me? So that tells me that every fish under the sea is controlled by Jesus Christ. That everything down to the tiniest plankton up to the whale in the sea is going to live or die on a moment-by-moment basis, not randomly, but because Jesus says it to be so. And I believe James saw that because they were skilled fishermen who couldn't catch any fish. But when Jesus said, put your nets down, he told some fish to jump in. Are you with me? Those fish didn't jump in randomly. Oh, isn't that amazing? Wow. Jesus happened to want it to happen, and it just happened. No, it's not random chance. Jesus made it happen. The fish jumped in. He said, jump in there, you little fishies. And he knew exactly what ones would come in. As a matter of fact, when he rose from the dead, we find that he had a specific number that he wanted to go into the net, and they did. Are you with me? So I think that when Peter had his head on the chopping block, he was thinking, hey, if Jesus is in charge of everything from fish to plankton to sharks to whales to whatever swims in the sea, he can take care of my body. He's in charge of reality. If they take my head off, it's not the end of me because Jesus controls reality. Amen? James recognized that Jesus is in charge. James saw, now I love this, James saw with his own eyes Jesus raise a dead person by reuniting a girl's spirit with her body. I want you to turn with me on this one. This is an important one. Uh, Mark chapter 5, beginning at verse 35. Mark chapter 5. Now, we read over there in about... Verse 21, 22, that what was happening was a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus had a daughter who was sick to the point of death. And he had come to Jesus and pretty much begged Jesus, heal my daughter, she's about to die. But there was such a crowd around Jesus that as he was moving through that crowd, some moments, some some minutes passed. And we know the story of he heals the woman with the issue of blood. She touches the hem of his garment. You remember that. So that kind of happens in between 
Jairus asking for Jesus' help. So in verse 35, now hold on to your hats because the Holy Spirit is going to speak to some of you with this, as he has with me. Listen, Jairus says, Jesus, please help me. My daughter's about to die. But then a crowd comes around and another healing takes place. And then in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house a servant of his who said, your daughter's dead. Okay, while Jesus has been in this crowd fooling around with these other people, your daughter's actually what? She died in the meantime. And this is what he says. Why bother the teacher any longer? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place where you said, okay, I wanted you to help me, God, but now it's hopeless. It was bad before, but now it's too bad. Now it's hopeless. How many of you have ever felt hopeless about a situation? God, too much time has passed. I prayed for this and it didn't happen that way and now it's hopeless. And that is what the servant said. You know what? Now she's dead, so why bother Jesus? I mean, he could have helped her when she was sick, but now he can't help her because she's dead. Are we ever without hope in Jesus Christ? No way. And I know, I believe when I talk to James in heaven, he'll tell me, yeah, Shelly, I did remember this. When they put me on that chopping block, I did remember that even death is not the end for the Christian. Amen? And so here's what Jesus said. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child's not dead, but only sleeping. And they laughed at him. Isn't that something? They laughed at Jesus when he said there was hope. But he put them all outside. Now, I love this. Think of, think of our guy, James. Jesus put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and the three disciples with him. That's all he took. Five witnesses. And in that intimate setting, he went into where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. <clears throat> this is never hopeless with Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to turn there, but let me tell you what Luke 8:55 says. You write it down as you have it. When Luke gives this account, he adds one detail that we didn't read in Mark's account. He says this, that when Jesus touched her hand, not only did she get up, but Mark says... Her spirit returned to her body. I believe that James remembered that when he was about to die. That's an important detail. Because I want to tell you something. If you have a loved one who is a Christian and their body is in the ground, their spirit is safe with Jesus. Amen? Because when this little girl died and her body was good as dead... Her spirit was being held by God. And when Jesus said it was time, her spirit entered back into her body and she rose again. Now I got to tell you something. When you struggle with a disease like I do, you sometimes think about this concept. I believe with James 
that if you put my body in the grave someday, if Jesus doesn't come back before I die, my spirit will be safe with God Almighty. And that at the word of Jesus, when the trumpet sounds, my spirit will meet my body in the air. And I will rise as a whole Shelley Prindle once again. How many of you believe that? Amen? And I believe that Jesus allowed James and the other disciples to see these miracles in an intimate situation so that they would know this is for real. I'm just telling you guys about it. James saw it happen. I don't know, you know, the way that Luke tells it, it's almost as if those three might have might have been able to see her spirit come back into her body. Can you imagine? And you're going to see it happen yourselves one day too. And that's the hope that James had. He saw Jesus bring a spirit back to a body. James observed the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. I would like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. Isn't this neat how James was in some of these intimate situations? Not a lot of people involved. But God was prepping him for what was going to happen to be the first martyr. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no launderer on earth could bleach them. How many of you women are like, yeah, I heard the, I heard, isn't that the coolest verse you've ever read? This is one of my favorite verses. Seriously. I just get so excited about, I just love the Bible. Okay, I just love it. This is so cool. God is so real. I actually wrote a devotion about this verse in, in, it's in my second book, Living in Awe. I just published the second book, and this is one of the devotions. And the title of the devotion is Dingy Socks. How many of you hate dingy socks? Never let them bother you again. Every time you pick up a dingy sock, I want you to think of this verse. The Bible says that on that day, Jesus' clothes shone so, so brightly that they shone more brightly in the Greek. It, it actually, in the Greek, is the word launderer. More brightly than any launderer could actually bleach them. Now, I read that. When I first read that, I had to write a devotion on it because I was like, I laughed out loud. I'm like, God, you are so cool that you would come down to human terms like this and talk about bleach. Because to this day in the year 2012, we're still trying to bleach stuff. I mean, Clorox is a very successful business because when you buy a pair of white socks, buddy, you want them to stay White. Now, if you're OCD like me, the minute you see a tinge of gray, they're gone. Those things are thrown away. You don't have to get holes in them. Just let them not be white, and they're gone. Because there's something in, now listen, there's something in a human being that wants things to be crisp and white and right. Now, I'm crazy enough to believe that that is because we were made in the image of God. I like white socks because God made me to like things new and clean and right. Are you with me? And every time you see a dingy sock, I want you to remember something. Perfect. Jesus stood in front of Peter, James, and John, and he was trying to get them to see something. And I believe this is one of the things he wanted them to see. Guys, I can do for you what no human effort could ever accomplish. No launderer could ever bleach clothes as white as my clothes are gleaming. And you could never... 
Clean yourself up. Make yourself new like I can make you new. Amen? He was trying to show them, the three of them, he took them aside intimately. He said, guys, I know this is hard for you to believe that I'm God. I know you don't quite get it yet. I know that I came and and I was in a manger and I wore diapers and I grew up in a carpenter's home and and I'm walking around I barely have a place to sleep and I don't look that glorious right now. But he took them aside for one minute and he glowed and he shone in a way so special. He's trying to get them to see. But guys, when I come back again, you will know I am the one. The veil will be removed, my glory will shine, and I will be known for who I truly am, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And only I can make a person white as snow. Only I can make a person brand new, a new creation in Jesus Christ. And that's why I can't wait for heaven, because nothing ever wears out. I can't wait for heaven. I'll be running around in my socks all the time with my Legos, playing around. You guys can do whatever you want. So... This is the thing. He was trying to tell them something special, and James was there. And I believe when James' head was on the chopping block, he remembered only Jesus, not my own effort, but only Jesus can make me right, forgive my sins, and promise me that everything's going to be new one day. Amen? James witnessed the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus firsthand. I just want to take the the tail end of this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Again, another situation where Jesus very intimately takes Peter, James, and John, in Matthew chapter 26, into the Garden of Gethsemane. I know that most of you are familiar with this. Jesus knows that his time is just about, and he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He tells the disciples, I am so overwhelmed that I feel that I'm going to die. Please come and watch and pray with me. And uh, true to form, they fall asleep three times. Okay? Just as human beings do. They kept falling asleep. Jesus came to them the first time when they had fallen asleep. And uh, he said to them, could you guys just kind of keep watch with me? Watch and pray because your spirit is going to be willing, but your body is going to be weak. They fall asleep a second time and they fall asleep a third time. And I want you to, to look with me at verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Now think about this. Only Peter, James, and John are standing there with Jesus. He has sweat great drops of blood. He has said, guys, I feel like I'm going to die under the weight of what's about to happen. And when he watches Judas and the soldiers come into the garden, James witnesses him not do this, not turn around and run away. James witnesses him not break down and say, it came to this final moment, and now I can't take it. James watched his Lord. Now, remember, when James was going to be martyred, he had already seen Jesus. He knew about all this, and he had already seen that he had resurrected. So James was looking backward, and I believe when he was about to die, he remembered. Now, when Jesus was about to be bound in ropes, scourged and nailed to a cross here's what he did my lord looked at me 
and said to me and Peter and John, get up. Let's look this square in the face. Let's go do God's will. Amen? That's courage. Jesus Christ showed them by a wonderful example that could just move you to tears. Jesus knew, this is what I came for. It's going to hurt bad. It's going to cost me everything. But I will rise and I will go because I trust my Father. Amen? You can't tell me that when Herod Agrippa sentenced James to a beheading, that James did not go back in his mind and think, I'll rise too. I'll rise and I'll face this head on and I'll be the testimony for Jesus that God has called me to be. No matter what it takes, I'll trust my life to the Father too. And I'm saying to you in the sanctuary tonight, it may not be that God has called you to physical death, but he may have called you to great sacrifice. Amen? Great sacrifice. You may be looking at things that you can't believe you have to endure. And Jesus would say to you, rise. Face it head on with courage because I am with you. James witnessed the risen Jesus firsthand. Two more points here. First of all, if you turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 19. After Jesus died, James witnessed him risen again. I love this. This is another cool verse. Share this with your kids if you never have. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The doors were locked. Did you catch that? I love it because people ask me, you know, what are our bodies going to be like in heaven, Shelley? Well, they're going to be real. We're going to, I believe that the body you see in front of you now, that will be my body in heaven and, and so on. But I also believe that I'll have like... The ability to do what Jesus did, like walk through walls, travel to the Andromeda galaxy. I can't wait, okay? So Jesus, he just kind of appears through a wall, goes through a locked door. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So James witnessed, now this is pivotal, he saw his Lord die and be crucified. He knew his body went into the tomb. He knew he was dead. But he also saw him after he arose to the point where he, the Lord shared his physical body with them. Are you with me? Now, James knew Jesus. If anybody knew Jesus, Peter, James, and John knew him. Amen? They knew what he looked like. They knew his voice. They knew his personality. And if this wasn't the same Jesus who went into the tomb, you better believe that James would have known it. And he would have said, wait a second, I'm not giving my life for this because I'm convinced that this man really came out of the tomb. Was he God? Yes, James was convinced because Jesus shared himself with his disciples. And then in John chapter 21, we won't take time to read it, but Jesus stands on the seashore and he appears to the disciples and they don't recognize it's him at first, but then he tells them to cast their net into the water and they bring in fish and then they realize that it's him and Peter swims out to him. And it's such a cool scene. Any of you like to go camping, do breakfast out in the morning on the grill? You know what I mean? This is so cool. What is heaven going to be like in a glorified body? Well, Jesus had his glorified body here. And what did he do? He made a charcoal fire and he broiled some fish and ate some bread and had breakfast with his disciples. 
Now, if you ever want to please Shelly Prindle, call me up and say, Shelly, you want to go out to breakfast at Eaton Park? There's nothing, there's nothing like better than a, what do they call it at Eaton Park? The the two-egg breakfast, the, what is it called? The what? Breakfast smile. You should know. The breakfast smile. Yeah, okay. I'm all about the breakfast thing with friends. So they're sitting there. They're eating breakfast. Okay, Jesus is eating in his glorified body. Yes, we're going to eat in heaven. Amen. Hallelujah. And all the diabetics said, can't wait for the blueberry pie. And not the Splenda one either, like the real blueberry pie. We're going to eat in heaven. So Jesus has his time with his disciples, and James witnesses it. This is the same Jesus. He has a real body again. He can walk through walls. He's doing amazing things, but he's eating with us. I believe when they put his head on the chopping block, James thought about this. Hmm. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen again. And if he had a real body after he died, and he's enjoying life like this, I will too. For every Christian that ever dies, there is full life ahead. You are not a disembodied spirit floating on some cloud somewhere eating cream cheese. You are living life to the fullest in heaven. Amen? And James believed in heaven enough to give his life away for it. And finally, the last thing. James witnessed the ascension of Jesus to heaven and the promise of his return. Acts chapter 1. And this is where we all are too. Again, this is one of my... Thank you. This is one of my favorites, baby. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 8. So here the disciples are. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, don't gloss over this. Here are the disciples. They've been through a whirlwind three years trying to be convinced that Jesus is God. Amen? They watch him do all these zany and crazy things, say all this weird stuff to them, say he was going to die and rise again, and then he does die, and in their humanness, they just can't even believe he will rise again. Their hopes are dashed. They're devastated. They run away like little whimpering babies. Then all of a sudden, he rises from the dead. They're like, oh, yeah, we did love him. Oh, yeah, he was right. He is God. They come rushing back to him now. They're like, wow, it was true. And they get 40 days. That's like 10 days more than a month is all. You know how time goes really fast? So after he rises from the dead and they actually realize, this guy that we put our hope in, he was right. He is God. So I can imagine for those 40 days, they're like jumping around. This is the coolest thing. He rose from the dead. Now I bet he's going to take over the whole world and do everything he promised. This is so cool. And after only 40 short days, he takes them out, tells them he's going to give them all this power by the Holy Spirit. And they're getting all pumped up. I wonder, he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel now. He's going to take everything over. All the promises of the Old Testament are going to come true. They're getting all revved up. Their timing's a little off. They're standing there, and all of a sudden, they're getting ready for him to do all this cool stuff. And all of a sudden, and I'm, I'm sorry, but I just believe that they were standing there like this, like those ladies were when I hit that car. 
James was thinking, you're going now? <laughs> what? Like, it's all come together finally. You, you you take over the world now. Like, it should be the millennium, okay? You should be doing all this to take What? And I believe they were literally standing there, miles agape, and that's why the angels came and said, men of Galilee, okay? Get with it here. This same Jesus, now stay with me. This same Jesus, James, the Jesus who called you in the slimy fishing boat. This same Jesus, the Jesus who put the spirit back in the dead girl. This same Jesus, the Jesus who hugged you and ate broiled fish with you. The Jesus who took nails in his hands on your behalf. This same Jesus that you hugged, that you know, that you love, that you've looked into his eyes. This same Jesus is going to come back down in the same way you saw him go up. And Jesus left James with that promise. And ten years later, James said, Herod, Sever my head from my body, because I will rise again. I belong to this same Jesus. And my hope is not in this life. It's not in this world. It's in the new world to come that my Jesus is going to make when he returns back in the same way he left. Puts his feet down on that Mount of Olives over there in the Middle East. Amen? splits the Mount of Olives in half, saves his people, and comes back to rule and reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is why the Bible can clearly and concisely say, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James didn't recant. He died as an eyewitness. And if that doesn't give us hope in this century, in 2012, I don't know what could ever give us hope than another human being staking his life on what he knew and saw to be true firsthand. Amen? Bow your heads with me if you would. Dear God, we have taken in a lot of information, a lot of truth tonight. But I thank you for this time. I thank you for the graciousness of the people in this sanctuary who have listened intently and patiently to your truth. And I know, Holy Spirit, that you have touched hearts because your word never returns void. And I know that you have drawn people here who need you. I believe there are two categories here tonight. There are those of us who are Christians who are struggling. We need true hope. Not a pipe dream, not fairy tale. We need to know that this Christian hope is based and rooted in fact and history. That our faith is one that transcends and goes above reason, but is not against reason. That God, you created us in your image as reasonable people and you have shown us facts. And then the Bible says that by faith, we, we must live by faith that goes above what can even fit in our brains. Because what you've done for us, the love you have for us, the heaven that is ahead of us is so much bigger than we could ever fit in our brains. 
But the faith, the truth of Christianity, is something that we can understand is rooted in fact. And I pray in Jesus' name for those people in this room who have needed a reminder that this is truth. That you actually came and lived and died and people saw that and they testified to that and they gave their lives based on that truth. And that we too can stake our lives knowing that you get in the stuff of life with us. That as you were there on that bloody, disgusting chopping block with James, you will be with us through everything we must endure. You'll be with us at our place of employment. You'll be with us in the hospital room. You'll be with us in the courthouse. You'll be with us wherever we have to go, in our living room, in the stuff of our lives. And God, I pray that for those who have been struggling, seriously asking, Lord, am I really saved? Do I really believe? Could I really face death trusting in you? Yes, Lord. You will give us the faith we need when it is our time. And you will bring to our remembrance, like you did for James, all of the wonderful attributes of you. And then, Lord, I pray for a second category of people, and that is people, Lord, I find myself in both categories, people who need to be convicted by your Holy Spirit to give more. Give your life away for Jesus Christ. Hold nothing back. Throw yourself on him for he is real and faithful and true. And he said, if anyone would try to save his life, he will lose it. But if anyone in the daily moments of life, in in all the stuff of life, if anyone loses his life for my sake, he will find it. What good is it for a man or a woman? To gain the whole world, yet forfeit his or her soul. So God, convict us. Let us stake our lives on Jesus Christ. While heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I always like to have this time because it is a great time of testimony to God and a time for you to solidify on a certain date and a certain place a commitment that you have made to God. And as God has laid this message on my heart, I've committed to pray beforehand and I commit to pray after you who feel that God has spoken to you and you would raise your hand and say, Shelley, I'm in one of those two categories and I'm thanking God for the power of his word and the love and hope of Jesus Christ tonight. If there's anyone that would say that, would you raise your hand and show the Lord and testify Thank you. Amen. That's wonderful. Anybody else find yourself in one of two categories? Shelly, I needed solid, factual hope. Or Shelly, I want to be convicted to give my life more solidly to this Jesus. He deserves it all. Amen. Thank you. Amen. That's wonderful. You can put your hands down. Anybody else? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We don't deserve what you say to us and what you do for us and who you are. But we love you, and we need you. So God, be with us. Use us and help us to stake our very life, our every hope, every moment and space 
of our lives, stake it all on Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.